to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willis, Jimmy Hall, and Funky Chester. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds, and souls. And many of the episodes will dive deep into the rich history of music mecca muscle shows. We're taping this episode at Creative Workshop Recording Studio in Nashville, and today's guests are music photographer Michael Weintraub and radio show host and vinyl DJ Tim Hips. Michael Weintraub is a photographer that largely works in the world of music. He's been working all over the U.S., including Colorado, where he was the house photographer at the Red Rocks Amphitheater and in New York City before moving his base of operations to Nashville. Michael just released a beautiful, beautiful photo book called Instrument Hats, featuring unique portraits of over 300 musicians. And we will learn about this amazing project here in a minute and also how you can get your own copy. Um, welcome to the Crazy Jester Radio Hour, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thanks for, for being here. Um, we first met down in Muscle Shoals when you went down for a, for a shoot with Donna Jean Gottschall, members of the Swampers, and Spooner Oldham, and uh, that you know got me attracted to your to your work. And then I learned that you uh, you've been working on a project called Instrument Hats. Would you mind kind of elaborating a little <clears throat> bit what that's all about? So I've been working on this project. The first one I photographed was in two thousand when I was the house photographer at the Aggie Theater in Fort Collins, and I was taking a portrait of the Derek Trucks band backstage, and the bass player was late to the photo shoot, and I said, hey, do something crazy. I don't know, put your bass down your shirt. And he did, and the final result is a photograph of the band with the bass player covering his face with his bass. So over time, that would be something that I would do to kind of create some emotion in photo shoots. So I had hundreds of these photographs of musicians with their faces covered by their instrument. I moved to New York, started shooting in the studio. In 2008, I picked up a book called The Disciples, where a photographer named James Mollison had photographed fans of bands, and the whole idea was to guess what band they were the fan of. Dolly Parton fans had blonde hair, cowboy hats, and big boobs. Willie Nelson fans had braids. ZZ Top fans had beards. Whalers fans had dreadlocks. I thought that was so cool. How can I create a guessing game with the musicians themselves? That's when I decided, decided to start focusing on this instrument head project. So I would basically contact all of the musician friends I knew from being a rock and roll photographer, music photographer over the years, and I offered them all free portraits for their promo and trade, and that took money out of the equation. And I would say to them, what is it about you that makes you special? 
how are people going to know it's you? So people would show up with all of these relics from their past or their instruments that they're known for playing that are sometimes more famous than they are. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you always see photos, music photos, and you, you've obviously fall in love with, with them. But then to, for something to come along that's so unique, that that's remarkable to me. I'm always trying striving for that too if we produce a show how can we make it unique and the idea behind it that you came up with I guess you know kind of by coincidence yeah, it's all by chance it was just following the river of life and just kept trying to move forward and be creative yeah and uh, would you mind sharing a little bit about the actual process of how the book came together, the physical product, because I know you did a, an Indiegogo camp campaign for it. I did. Well, originally I was meeting with major publishers like HarperCollins and Rizzoli, and many of them said the same things, that there wasn't a focus. Who are the stars? Who are we going to pitch this to? So I decided that I would go on the road and start doing exhibits. And by doing the exhibits, I built a following and by building a following, I was able to do a crowdfunding campaign. I launched my campaign in October of 2015 on Indiegogo, and it was the fourth highest photo book that, to date at that time that Indiegogo had raised money for. And I worked with some Italians, um, Diego Orlando, who was the um, editor for Burn Magazine, which is David Allen Harvey's photo blog and David if you, if any of you know anything about photography David Allen Harvey is a famous magnum photographer these are the guys that are on the boat as it's about to sink and they take the photograph and then somehow they get rescued and the photos live on so these are serious documentary photographers and they think like photographers so I wanted to create a book that was a real photographic journey art book not just an encyclopedia of rock and roll or a rock and roll cookbook, I would say. Um, so I went to Italy and I printed this at one of the nicest printers in the world called Grafica Antica. Yeah, you told me that they've done the Pirelli calendars among other things. There yeah, they too. did. Th they've done Pirelli, the Pirelli calendar a few times, and they've printed books for Steve McCurry and many other great photographers. And you know, regardless of whether or not you love the photographs or like the photographs, this book is super cool because there's three different kinds of paper. There's three different covers, and there's 368 different musicians. So the whole goal was to create a product that you could flip through without getting bored. Most photo books have 100 to 120 images in it. This has over 368 images in it. So we really worked hard on the design, and we got a great award. We got a Design of the Year at the Independent Book Publishers Awards, which was amazing. Yeah, congrats, and I wish we could, you know, our listeners could actually take a look at the book because it is stunning. I mean, just the quality of the paper, obviously the fo the photographs and the whole design uh, is, is spectacular. Thank and you. Craig Havinghurst, who is a, a local music journalist here in Nashville, he helped you somewhat too with, uh, with the editorial. Yeah, so Craig helped me to put together... Um, the captions for the images in the book as well as my introduction help me gather my thoughts yeah and somebody else who who's uh quoted on the back of the book and i might ask you to uh to read that quote but was very important to you is colonel bruce hampton who recently passed away would you mind sharing the quote and then kind of elaborate a little sure. bit on your connection 
So this is the quote on the back of the Instrument Head book where you can go to instrumenthead.com to learn about it. Here we go. Instrument Head, an obsession, a compulsive journey. This visionary book is not playing checkers. You might say the wind starts here. The production, the vision makes time look like space. This is now. What an outspiration. You can see the music in it dance. So that's super cool that Bruce wrote this quote for me and has been a, a guiding light in my life for a really long time. How did you initially get hooked up with him? I met I met Bruce Hampton in the late 90s at the Zambieland Orchestra at the Variety Playhouse. It was a, um, a benefit concert they would do every year before Christmas time where people like from the Aquarium Rescue Unit camp and Widespread Panic camp and Fish, it was basically like a lot of the people from the jam band scene. Yeah. Bruce was kind of the godfather of the jam band scene, kind of like a Sun Ra or a Captain Beefheart kind of character. Um, and I met Bruce and we connected and I was really young and I had some of those crazy experiences that people have with Bruce that they talk about when they mention his name. And over the years, we just kind of grew together and he was a guiding force for me and he's the kind of guy that gave people permission to be themselves. He was a real conduit for people, especially the musicians who went through his camp. Yeah, I mean, maybe just to tell listeners a little bit more about him. I mean, people like Derek Trucks and O'Teal, uh, who was a member of the of the Allman Brothers and is now out with that and company. They went through his school, if you will, and they they got, were highly influenced by him. And he's one of the most eclectic eccentric and unique individuals in music and I think uh, his legacy will always be increasing over time now I think he's left such an important mark on Southern American music and it was amazing being at the concert I had set up a, um, a, a book table there did a book signing there and I actually gave him the book as a gift that day the day that he passed on stage if those of you don't know, we didn't mention it, but Colonel Bruce Hampton passed away on May 1st at his tribute concert in Atlanta at the Fox Theater, surrounded by all of his friends on stage, playing the song Love Light, which coincidentally enough was the first song he ever played live on stage, and it was the last song. You can't you can't even make stories like that up. No, you cannot. That's like as rock and roll as it gets. It is. It is. All right. Uh, also, you know, me and a lot of people, I think, listening to this uh, podcast are uh, somehow connected to the Muscle Shoals music scene and in love with Muscle Shoals sound. And I wondered if you might uh, tell us a little bit about that particular photo shoot that you did down at the Nut House in Jeffield, Alabama with, uh, with some of the, of the area's musicians. Well, when I first moved to Nashville, I became the house photographer for the Bluegrass Underground, which is a concert that happens in Cumberland Caverns in a cave in McMinnville, Tennessee. And one day I'm walking in and I see this guy. He looks really familiar. His, his, and we realize where we met. His name is Jimbo Hart. And Jimbo is the bass player for Jason Isbell. And we had met many years before when he was on tour with Papa Molly in New York and they stayed in my apartment. And I remember I took Jimmy out and got him pizza and took care of him and we had a great time. Jimbo, I mean. And he... Uh, 
we realized how we knew each other. And then he told me he was from Muscle Shoals and how he knew everyone in Muscle Shoals. And I said, well, I'm looking to come down there and do this instrument head project. So he connected me with Jimmy and Angie Nutt at the Nut House. And they connected me with Jimmy Johnson and David Hood from the Swampers, Donna Jean Gotchow from the Grateful Dead, and Spooner Oldham from every band. You know, like Spooner plays with a lot of people, same yeah. with same with all these guys. But so we went down and we set up the studio at the Nut House and Jimmy and David came on down and we had a great time. Um we we the we had the the problem of trying to figure out how to hang Spooner's Wurlitzer. Like these instruments, I want to reiterate the fact that this isn't done in Photoshop. They're actually hanging or holding or down their shirt. So Spooner is actually there with his tan Wurlitzer that he's played on countless amount of records, holding a giant red spoon. Yeah, that's something else that struck me going through the books. They don't just have their instrument in front of their heads and kind of speaking for themselves but also there's quite a few hints incorporated in the individual shots like Spooner has the spoon on it Donna Jean I believe has her duo album with her late husband on there too and her son is on the cover of that absolutely Zion. and Derek Trucks has has bought you know just all the, the slides. slides on his fingers so exactly. it's that you can and I'm sure it's different every time, but but how is the process of like, you know, you mentioned trying to get people comfortable is important first, but then how do you compose the photo? Well, we do a whole photo shoot before we even get to the instrument head, and my whole goal through that process is to make them comfortable. You know, people come into the studio and they're like, okay, how do I do it? What, what do I do with the instrument? And I said, no, just take it down a notch, and we're going to get into it as we get into it and that's the last thing we do and um you know a lot of in many instances i have um apparatuses to where i can hang the instruments from wires and you know it's it's difficult you know gaining the trust to be able to hang these priceless instruments so it's a really fun experience you know i've never really broken anybody's stuff i've broken a lens before though you know diving to catch someone's drum machine yeah. So it's like full contact photography. Yeah. We're, I mean, it's fun. Absolutely. And uh, just for everybody out there, if you would like to learn more about Instrument Head, you can go to instrumenthead.com. One can purchase the book there, Yeah, you too. can purchase the book. There's three different covers. You can choose which cover you want, and I'll sign it for you and ship it out. Yeah, that's great. And I can honestly, I mean encourage everybody to research more because it is a piece of art by any mean and and uh, one thing I would like to talk to you a little bit too is like most of my interview partners here are going to be musicians but I'm always interested in the intersection of music and other arts or other fields so uh, and you've been navigating the world of photography and music and its intersection and uh Obviously, different arts have been influencing each other for ages, and there's always been some cross-pollination. And here in Nashville, this is especially apparent in East Nashville, where your studio is located. And uh, would you mind sharing a little bit how that East Nashville environment or that collaborative spirit is influencing your work? I mean, it's great to be there. It kind of feels like um, Brooklyn did when I moved there in 2005. 
I feel like there's a real renaissance happening here. There's a lot of people moving to town. You know, where my studio is, we have an art gallery, um, a recording studio, a silk screener, a third generation Mexican luthier who makes classical instruments and mariachi instruments. There is a textile designer, a clothing designer, a woodworker. So it's amazing being in this community of all these creative people. And we've been having concerts and art shows there. And, um, you know, my place is a photo studio, but we're also having events and exhibits. And it's just great to be able to share the space with people. And that's what I really love to do the most. I love being here in East Nashville. It feels great. Yeah, and also besides uh, working on your in instrument head project still and also having exhibits around it, you're also uh, a photographer, I guess the house photographer at the Ascend Amphitheater. I do, yeah. I, I, I photograph concerts at the Ascend Amphitheater since I've been here. I've photographed many, many great musicians like My Morning Jacket, the Doobie Brothers, Chicago, Jeff Beck, um, ZZ Top. I mean, the list goes on and on. You did a, an album cover for a Grammy-winning Johnny Winter release too. Yeah, I did. I did that. I did the album cover for the Step Back record. It's funny Johnny passed away and then he won the Grammy, but at least he got it. So it, it felt really good. And and that photograph that was on the cover of that Step Back record was actually one of the normal portraits from our instrument head shoot. So that's what would happen. I would go and create this work, and then they would realize they need it. Bootsy Collins used it on a record. Joe Lewis Walker had it on his album cover. The Living Blues Heritage Orchestra had it on their album cover. People like Carl Denson and George Porter Jr. from The Meters used it on their album cover. So, you know, a lot of creatives and artists are waiting to get hired before they create the work. And I realized that I just need to go out and create the work because I am an artist. Absolutely, and people can get in touch with you too through your website if they are want to inquire about you, your work and maybe about hiring you to, to work for them. You, you did a lot. Absolutely, so you could go to instrumenthead.com to learn about the book, which will take you to Magnetbound Press, which is my publishing company I started. And if you want to see my portfolio of some of my other photography, you can go to michaelweintraub.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-W-E-I-N-T-R-O-B.com. And that's where you'll see a variety of the stuff that I've done. Yeah, absolutely. And you have a few exciting things coming up, too. Would you mind sharing some of that? I know you talked about the something in Muscle Shoals here coming well, up very soon. Yes, I have something in Muscle Shoals in August 24th through the 27th. We're going to be doing an exhibit at Fame Studios. If you've seen the Muscle Shoals movie, you learned about Rick Hall. He's the guy who started Fame Studios. So I'm really honored to be there, especially since I'm from Alabama. Actually, this Friday, we're doing an after party for the NAM show at the Ascend VIP Club, where we have a bunch of musicians and companies sponsoring it. Lee Oscar from War will be there. Doug Wimbish from Living Color will be there. Nir Felder, the great jazz guitar player, will be there. So I'm excited about that. But what I'm most excited about is... On the 17th, I leave to drive to Colorado, where on the 21st, I have an exhibit that opens up at Red Rocks Amphitheater in their museum, where I'll be showing until August the 5th. So it's all come full circle, because I started my career there, 
and now I get to bring what I've done since I left there back home to Red Rocks. That's so that's I'm, I'm psyched. That's great. <laughs> well, we're certainly glad to have you here in Nashville because we need people like you. and uh, We need people like you. Well, if we can help all each other, I'm all happy. We're so doing it. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for being my guest today, and I wish you all the best with all your future endeavors. Thanks, Thank you man. for coming. Good luck. Thanks for having me. Good luck to you. Tim Hips is the host of the Vinyl Lunch Radio Show on Acme Radio here in Nashville, where he hosts music industry guests spinning a mix of classic records on vinyl and hard-to-find tracks recorded in Music City and beyond. He's also a vinyl DJ who spins records at club, private, and corporate events. Previously, he's worked for several record labels, including Sony, RCA, V2, and Plowboy Records, and has also worked at Gibson Guitars here in Nashville and the Country Music Hall of Fame. I had the pleasure of being a guest on his show several times, and I'm glad to return the favor, although I doubt that's a favor to begin with, <laughs> because you're playing the big game and I'm only a Ah, no. Turnabout podcast. is fair play. <laughs> Thank you. But uh, we share a love for record collecting and music in general, and uh, I would love to talk about that with you. So uh, please welcome fellow music geek and crate digger, Tim Hibbs. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, you know, my dad was a record collector, so I grew up that way. I didn't know any other way to be, and I didn't. It took me a while to realize that other kids didn't have a full album collection at their disposal. But uh, I, w I was very fortunate. My dad and my mom were both from Kentucky, so my dad actually grew up listening to Nashville radio, WLAC, when it was a powerhouse R&B station. He was listening to WSM. He was also getting rock stations out of Cincinnati and Chicago. So he had a real eclectic upbringing musically, and that's what he transferred to me. I mean, his record collection, it was Hank Williams next to James Brown. You know, it, it was just everything, because he liked everything. He just liked good music. And that's, that's how I grew up, and now that I do the, the weekday show, The Final Lunch, that's what we try to reflect. It's just all genres, all decades, only good music. And we bring people in to talk about that, because... In Nashville, if you get together with somebody, nine times out of ten, you'll wind up talking about music and then talk about records. And so I thought, why don't we replicate that on the radio? And that's what we do. Yeah, and I think it's a great concept. And the fact that you can actually physically spin the vinyl records like they used to, it just it's not just a conversation piece, but it's just like... Uh, it's so authentic, if you ask me. Yeah. And well, it's it's living history. I mean, I was a history major. I'm a history nerd. Um, a record is an actual physical representation of a moment in time, and whether it's a studio or a live recording. It's like that's what happened at that point. And particularly here in this part of the country, we have so many legendary studios here in Nashville, in Muscle Shoals, in Memphis. Making, I mean, all around us are these were these centers where these records were made, and Nashville in particular is great because it's been a record town for a hundred years, and there's just layer upon layer upon layer of records out there. If if you're a like a guy who wants to go search for vinyl, Nashville is one of the all-time best places to do that. Absolutely. Would you mind uh, sharing a little bit more about your current job? 
with the vinyl launch and kind of what what Acme Radio is and what sure. they are trying to do, just kind of give the listener an idea. Yeah, well, Acme Radio broadcasts from the studio in just inside the front door of Acme Feed and Seed, which is at First and Broadway in downtown Nashville. It is a four-story restaurant slash performance venue that is a building, also a building that's on the National Historic Register. It was a feed and seed for decades. It was built after the Civil War uh, here in Nashville. Most of the wood in the building had to be floated down the Cumberland since the Union Army, when they occupied Nashville, took most of the wood. So there still wasn't a lot of wood even when they got around to building this building. So it was Captain Tom Ryman who floated the wood down the Cumberland for a lot of our building. So we've got that Ryman history and connection built into us, literally. And uh, I started doing some things with Acme. I went to their opening party where hardworking Americans played on the hatchery level, which is our third floor, which is where they used to hatch the baby chicks when it was a, a real working feed and seed. And I was talking to Carl Gaddy, who's the entertainment director. I said, man, you need somebody to come down here and spin records. He goes, well, why don't you come do it? So I arranged to come down a couple of days a week and just play records uh, during lunchtime on the stage on the first floor. And I called it the lunchtime vinyl session. And what was so fun about doing that in Nashville is you'd be spinning a record and somebody would come up and say, I wrote that. Or I played bass on that. Or... You know, Steve Warner would walk in and say, oh, that's me, you know, and so you just had all of these connections automatically with records just from the crowd. And, you know, that's the thing in Nashville. You never know who is at the next table or sitting next to you at the bar. Uh, it could be the guy who produced that record. So we, we had a lot of fun doing that and really good feedback. And all, all the while, kind of unbeknownst to me, Tom Morales, who's the owner of uh, Acme Feed and Seed and also Tomcat's Catering, many other restaurants in the area, he'd always wanted to do some type of radio station. He originally had the idea when he took over the Loveless Cafe, and it just, for whatever reason, didn't work there. But, you know, they, they'd actually uh, formed a partnership with uh, Music City Roots. They were the first venue at the Loveless Barn for the weekly Music City Roots show, which has now moved out to the factory. But, you know, that, that had been in the back of his mind, so they decided to do that there in Acme, and it just uh, it got incorporated. And Carl came to me and said, how would you feel about doing this on the air rather than on the stage? And I said, well, that sounds great to me. So uh, I started doing it full-time in January of 2016. We officially launched uh, February 10th, 2016, and we had Mayor Barry and Dave Cobb. Uh, J.D. Souther and Brent Cobb actually come and help us do the launch. Actually, Mayor Barry was the interviewer that day and really grilled everybody well, and that was our official launch. And I just, I, you know, I have no set format or anything for the show. It was just left up to me, what do you want to do? And, you know, of course I wanted to play records. But then I wanted to bring people in, too, because as I had said just doing that on the stage people would automatically come up and talk and want to tell stories about the records or what they meant to them and you know music is so evocative you you know there's so many records I hear it's like oh man I remember exactly where I was when I first heard that or when I bought a copy of that album and and it just it's a real memory trigger so I, I, I felt real confident that if I had people in to talk about records that we'd get that passion coming forward. And 
with an artist, particularly a veteran artist who's done hundreds, thousands of interviews, I felt like maybe it could be a different approach. Maybe we could get it a different kind of interview by talking about records. And then, you know, the other stuff would kind of come in the tra- in the cracks and everything. But, man, when somebody starts talking about a favorite record, if they're a music fan, they just come alive. And that's it's been my great pleasure to see that that actually has happened. And we've had such a wonderful uh, series of guests. I mean, you've been on the show several times, and you've helped connect us to people. And, you know, the great thing about Nashville, as I'd love to say on the show, there's no six degrees of separation. There's maybe one. Absolutely. But, you know, you know somebody who probably knows that, if you're trying to get in touch with somebody, who knows that person, and then they start bringing people in. And, you know, someone like Bill Lloyd, who I've known for a long time, even before I moved to town, is so connected to everybody in Nashville, and it just kind of builds on itself that way. And we've got some wonderful publicists that I work with that have brought a lot of people. And and now, I mean, we we still go out all the time and 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 pitch people on the show, but it's it's starting to get to the point where people are coming to me, and um, you know, and and thanks so much to people like Peter Goralnik and Dwayne Eddy, who believed in the show in the very beginning and were willing to come on, and then kind of on the strength of their name, other people, well, okay, if Dwayne Eddy has done it, I guess I can do it. And it's just, it's yeah. it's kind of built on itself that way. Yeah. And uh, it is available online at acmuradiolife.com. You guys yeah. have a mobile app, too. We do, yeah. You got the archived shows on mixcloud.com yeah they're all on mixcloud.com every show that i do is archived and i strive to get it up within 24 hours of the air date and i always post those links and you know they're on my uh, facebook page uh, you can get them through acme radio live or just search google you can go the vinyl lunch Dwayne eddy and and the show will pop up that way but yeah they're on mixcloud.com is where they're all hosted and my show's a two-hour show. It's every weekday, 11.30 to 1.30 Central Time, since we emanate from Nashville. But, yeah, it's the, it's the archives where we find so much of the listenership because, you know, maybe somebody doesn't have that two hours in the middle of the day. Or if you're in Australia or London or wherever you are, it may not be convenient for you at that time to listen live. But uh, we do have listeners in 247 countries now which is you have friends in switzerland who listen to some of the programs we did yeah and you know uh the other day gramps morgan a great reggae artist who lives here now was on the show and kazakhstan checked in and uh you know norway checked in and it's just it's that's the best thing about modern technology i mean i i understand the irony of broadcasting last century's technology on the new but <laughs> digital forum. But that's part of the charm, too, yeah. if you ask me. Well, I, you know, I look at music as a continuum. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a straight line. Everything builds on what came before. And to be able to play records over the latest technology and have people literally at any point in the world able to access it, man, that's great. If you would have told me as a kid that I could have listened to something in London or in Australia or wherever from the, you know, comfort of my own home I wouldn't have believed you it's like what but now we just we live in such a great time if you're a music fan there's never been a better time for you to reach out and you know now you're doing this podcast and those will be out there and what we find with the archives which I'm sure you'll probably find with the podcast is somebody will discover this it's it's a time capsule and you know I'll get notes about shows that we did last year and somebody has just found it and that's, to me, the great thing about records is they're always there. They're always waiting for you to discover them. And uh, today I had on the show uh, a young artist who 
had only recently gotten into David Bowie. But the thing is, once he did, there's this whole catalog now that he gets to kind of run through and celebrate and learn. And I just love that about records because they, they're, as we say, they're, they're these, you know, snapshots of a time and you can always go back to them. And, you know, I, as a format, I think vinyl is the most human of the formats. You know, it's, it's analog. We hear an analog. Records play an analog. They get scratched. They get dirty, just like us. They might need a little TLC, but records are the only format that have been around 100 years. And really, uh, I, I think a strong argument can be made that they're the most durable. I mean, tape will get brittle and break or stretch. Hard drives crash. Uh, CDs tend to rot. The plastic will get cloudy. I mean, you know, a good vinyl record's going to last a few lifetimes with proper care. Just don't leave them in the hot car. You don't leave them in the hot car. No, again, well, you don't leave, a, uh, you know, you don't want to leave us or a dog in a hot car Absolutely. either. So, you know, it's it's kind of a almost a living organism in that fact. But yeah, yeah. you know, um, vinyl just sounds so good to me. I And I don't want to argue on, oh, it's better than CD. I just prefer it. But, you know, the thing about spinning records out in a venue especially hearing a 45 especially coming through a big PA there's just nothing like it man it sounds so good and the great thing about doing that in Nashville at a place like the five spot is that people are really kind of hungry to hear stuff that they haven't heard whether it's from last week or last century and you'll be playing a Willie Mitchell record and you know a guy who maybe is barely old enough to be in the club will come up and say who is that or you know who produced that or who's playing bass on that and it's just that, that passion for music that I think is what connects so many people in Nashville, regardless of age or genre, interest, or whatever. You know, it's uh, another cliche I love to use on the show is it's music city. It's not just country music city. We have so many different types of music here. And that's reflected in, I think, everybody's taste and uh, the records that they want to find and hopefully in what we play on the show. Yeah, absolutely. And that. You know, just the fact that you kind of physically engage. Yeah. You have to put the record on. If it's an LP, you have to turn it after 22 minutes. Yeah, you get that. And you have a like natural intermission. You in, have in a natural world. intermission. You actually have to make the effort to put that music on. Yeah. And so, like that connection, that runs just a little bit deeper, too. It does. Well, it pulls you into it. And, you know, and again, the irony of, of saying this on a digital format, but... In the digital world, things are becoming, I think, too virtual for us, or the temptation is there to withdraw into yourself, into your own earbuds and iPad or phone or whatever. And there is something to physically touching an, an object, especially a work of art, whether it's a book or a record or a painting, whatever. You know, going to see a film in a theater, it's... It's part of an experience, and it's a different experience than just doing it by yourself, doing it digitally. Now, that said, I listen to digital stuff every day. I mean, I, I stream stuff in the car. It's, it's all part of it. I, I don't say that you should get rid of that, but there's a real importance to preserving physical media for me. Uh, you know, we're, we're at a point where the CD's about to disappear, and that's, you know, not that I'm a huge fan of the CD. I have CDs, but I would much prefer you actually have a CD to listen to music than just a stream because there again at least you have to take it out of the jewel case put it in the player 
you may have some liner notes, albeit very tiny, but you know, there's, there's something there. And, you know, there's something about picking up a real book and smelling the book and, and feeling the texture of the pages. That's all part of the experience and part of it that really pulls you that much further into it. And yeah, you know, pulling out that record, putting it on the, the turntable, putting the stylus down, looking at the artwork, maybe reading the liner notes, uh, if there are liner notes, and hopefully there are, it's just, or the inner sleeve information, you know, that's what I studied as a kid. It wasn't, for me, it wasn't like reading the stats off of a baseball card. I wanted to know who produced that album. Where was it recorded? Oh, this other album was recorded there, and that same guy produced it. Hmm. Then you, you start following that thread. It's like, well, if I liked that, maybe I'd like this other record that they worked on. And uh, and just and the artworks like wow that's a weird picture yeah. why did they decide on that and that for me that was very much the same thing and I'm I mean convinced that I learned more about producing by reading by listening mm-hmm. by researching because you learn oh these people create these kind of sounds how did they do this what this how does the rhythm section work? Which bass player and which drummer create which kind of push and pull? I mean, you cannot, you know, that's the that's education for me. Oh yeah. And also what you said before, you know, everything might be available at your fingertips almost now in the digital age, mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily make it easier to find great music. And the role of the curator, which to me you're a curator as much as anything else by spinning records, by having your radio show and kind of, you know, trying to expose people to music that you liked, people to music that you think is worth listening to. When I've been to your show, you know, beforehand I thought, you know, what can I bring that people might have not heard before? What do I like? What would I like to share? Mm-hmm. And that urge, you know, combined with absolutely, you know, the pleasure of being you know, there with you and talking about music has is a great great experience for me to be able to do that with you. So thank you for that opportunity. Oh, well, thank you for coming. Yeah, you know, it's um, it is that uh, my feeling is life is far too short. I'll never have enough time to hear all the music I want to hear, but I'm I'm trying to get in as much as I can. And you know what you just said there that virtually everything is at your fingertips, but not everything. And that's the great thing about records is. I've had countless experiences where I've been spinning records out in public and I'll see folks reach up with their phone and I know that they're doing the Shazam app. And it's, it's like, not what is Shazamable. <laughs> and it's not in there. And they'll look at their phone like it's broken and they'll come up and say, man, I, I can't find this. Well, yeah, you know, this record never even made it to CD, let alone some digital database. So the vinyl world is, was just so vast. I mean, it was huge. And there's so many regional and, you know, smaller label records, especially that never did make that jump that are still waiting to be discovered. And that's that's the great thing. And, you know, you deal so much with Muscle Shoals. There are even records out of Muscle Shoals that are not in those oh, Shazam man, many. databases. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's it's all part of um, that's what before the Internet, it was hard to learn about a lot of times about this music, especially me. I grew up in a series of small towns and. You know, you'd get a magazine or somebody, you'd get word of mouth. Somebody would tell you. It, it was all about, you know, putting the pieces of the puzzle together. It was a mystery that you were trying to solve. And, you know, and again, I think you, that invested you more in it and made it you that much more appreciative when you finally found out about it. As you were saying, it, it's part of the education. But 
Uh, you know, everybody today now can can go and find out about things, but there's just so much coming at everyone that, yeah, I do think that uh, you need to kind of find those uh, uh, curators or gatekeepers, whatever you want to call them, that can help point you at things. And thankfully, there's a lot of those people out there now. And um, it is a truly a worldwide pool of people to draw from. Yeah. So besides hosting your radio show, you're also doing a lot of live uh, work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, spinning vinyl. Would you mind sharing a little bit kind of where people might be able to see you or to, to, to hear your work? Oh, sure. I know you're, you've been, you know, all over town. Um, yeah, well, you know, uh, I spend every Tuesday night at the Five Spot. I have for the last uh, more than five years now with Derek Hoke. He does a promotion called Two Dollar Tuesday. Derek is a fantastic local musician, and every Tuesday he puts on a variety show. It's four or five acts doing short sets. I spin records for an hour before the music, live music starts, and then I do it in between each act, and I pick a different theme every week, and it's just you know it's great and again I am so thrilled to do that especially in a area like East Nashville where at least half the audience is going to be musicians and they're like really interested in what you're playing I um, you know I've done other things around town I I do some live things at Acme I've done live events at uh, City Winery and I'll spin, um, you know, in restaurants around town, whether they'll be House or Adele's. My Facebook page, I'm Tim Hibbs. Uh, I always put up, uh, you know, what I'm doing there or put it on Instagram as well. And, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's a pleasure to do that. And it does take a lot more work to bring a bunch of records to spin than it does to spin from a digital source, you know. Some guys show up with a laptop that would be a whole lot easier, but it's just not not what I do. And I think there's a beauty to having a box of records and being able to create a set from that. It is like Jack, Jack White likes to talk about self-imposed limitations and then kind of working your way out of that, kind of like fighting your way out of that bag. That's why he, with the White Stripes, there were two people. He was purposely playing... Uh, kind of crappy guitars and just so he would challenge himself so he'd really have to work to make it sound good and um, not that I think records sound bad I think they sound great but yeah you know it's it's a lot more weight when you're hauling all of that around but uh, another place that I'll be doing things this summer is the uh, night market at farmers market the third Friday of every month is a, a nighttime celebration at Farmer's Market Nashville where the entire food court is open and they've got wine gardens and beer gardens and uh, actually they'll have another DJ who's outside. I'll be inside in the food court, but it's a ton of fun. I mean, it's, it's like all of these people and every age range and I love it when a kid will come up to me and I'm playing something like uh, Ann Peebles' I Can't Stand the Rain, a great record from Memphis on high records. And somebody comes up and says, who is that? And that's 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 the goal. You know, that's for me. If you can turn somebody on to a great record, that's a joy because then they'll pass it on down the line. Because the same same people did that for me. I mean, for me, it was my dad. For a lot of people, it's an older sibling or it's the guy at the record store. It's like somebody kind of puts you on that path and then you go and you pass it on. Yeah, that's great. And 
and now I have a question for you. Earlier on, I had a friend of mine. His name is Michael Weintraub here, and he has a book called Instrument Heads where he uh, oh, yeah. takes no. portraits of musicians with their instrument mm -hmm. in front of their heads with the idea behind it that the instrument tells more about the person than the face would almost because the, those musicians are they identify themselves so much through their instrument. Now, trying to kind of extrapolate to what you do, what does your record collection tell people about you? I'm a mess. <laughs> I'm just all over the place, literally. But, I mean, what I would like is that if you went and tried to do some kind of forensic, uh, you know, examination, it would take you a while to arrive at any conclusion because over here might be a group of reggae records and over there, there would be some bubblegum records and then some heavy metal records and then a lot of alt 90s stuff. And so yeah, it's, um, but, but I hope the conclusion that you would come to is, man, this guy likes all kinds of music and um, you know, that's a really cool reggae record and that's a really cool gospel record. You know, it's just, um, as I say, life is short and music is so vast that we just don't have enough time to, I think, to enjoy it all. But I'm, I'm trying. I'm really trying. Absolutely. And by the way, this, uh, an exhibit of these photographs of the instrument faces was up at the Hall of Fame while I worked there. Okay. They that's, did, a, did a really cool exhibit of that. That's great. Great He's, shot of, uh, there's one of Taylor Bashir's who's been on the show. Several of these musicians have been on the show, actually, that were part of that uh, exhibit. Yeah, and, and he's a unique cat himself, and he's been, you know, kind of by accident, he, he came up with this, and mm -hmm. now it's kind of his signature lick. Yeah. And uh, uh, hopefully his new book is going to have a lot of success. He also came down to Muscle Shoals to do it with Donna Jean Gotch on Spoon Rolled. And, oh, nice. And some of those guys. You know, what I would say along the lines of your question, though, is I get really sad when I hear that somebody only listens to one kind of music. Like, I only listen to rockabilly, or I, I only listen to techno, or I only listen to this. I think, man, that's, why limit yourself? Um I had a conversation yesterday on the show with Amy Black, great artist, done a new al she's done a new album in Memphis, and she happened to say, oh, I don't really care for disco, and I was defending disco. And, you know, she good-naturedly agreed with me, but, you know, back in the, the whole Disco Sucks era, I never understood that. It's like, why can't you like disco and like hard rock? Why does it have to be either or? I, I really don't, I just can't fathom that idea of only withdrawing into one little thing. That would be like eating a ham sandwich for every meal. Ham sandwiches may be great, but there's other kind of food. You know, you don't, don't you get tired of that after a while? So, yeah. anyway. That's a good point. Well, uh, I would like to encourage everybody to tune in to Tim's radio show, The, the Vinyl Lunch, wherever uh, they might be around the globe it's not that hard so yeah. and if you're interested in finding out more about his DJing work feel free to leave a comment and I'll be happy to put you in touch with him too because he he's he's the best from what I can tell and it's always fun to to not just talk music with him but also to listen to his vast uh, collection and uh, 
you know, go over to the five spot and see what kind of R&B nugget you're, you just <laughs> dug out. So anyway, well, thank you so much for being on my show today. And, uh, it's uh, been my pleasure, Andreas. All the best with the podcast. Uh, and again, I would encourage everybody to, you know, dig up every podcast, subscribe to this, and make sure that you don't miss a minute of it because uh, Andreas came from halfway around the world to get to Nashville to explore all this stuff. The least that you can do is click it up on your uh, whatever your uh, iPod server or your uh, podcast server is. So Great. Thank you so much. This was the third episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Special thanks to Creative Workshop Recording Studio for hosting us today and Joe Funderburg for his technical assistance. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. See you next week. Music